Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of Rackend and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This is a session from our archives, the December 17th, 2020 discussion about how artificial intelligence and AI and security are interplaying and what we're going to have to do to make things work together. As always, Cloud 2030 discussions cover a lot of ground and I think you will enjoy this one. Thanks. Deals law. Disprove it? <laughs> the main things I, I put aside because I didn't want to start typing too much, but basically, <laughs> uh, it. what about all the services? And basically, so I think you actually agree with me. What about all the services that are created that no one ever actually uses? Basically, the, the issue is, this is where I think you were getting at, is that if you create it, people start assuming that you have to start supporting it. Right. And that's right. not the case. You basically should wait before you support things even though it's people start rushing towards it. Oh, um, and I started trying to come up with all the examples that people where people tried to, where the services came and then they, it's just stopped. Just because AWS comes up with a new type of service doesn't mean everyone else should start thinking about how they're going to want to support that type of service also. Right, right. No, I mean, it's a good point. And certainly it's not a, um, a meant to be much more than a, um, a joke of a law, but, you know, for the most part, <laughs> For the most part, my my own history is has been that um, uh, you know I learned the hard way. Frankly, I try to do somebody a favor, um, create some sort of access, or um, give them a new tool, and before you know it, the whole department is demanding demanding the same access, or mm -hmm. every person that does that job through the entire division uh, of the company wants to be able to do that same mm -hmm. thing, and. It was never anything that was any more than a favor to begin with. Now I've got to either figure out how to justify shutting it off or figure out how to justify supporting it um, in real terms. And when you think about when I was thinking about, I was thinking about edge specifically and a lot of the companies that I'm talking to that are enabling things inside stores, as an example, are enabling some minor features that individually don't seem to be, a big deal at the store. And if any one of them were off, um, who would complain or why would they think, think it a big deal? But the combination of those services are almost the web that holds the store together now uh, relative to modern technology. And when the, the group of those services go away, it's almost as if you've taken away the point of sale tool and people all of a sudden have to figure out how to um, do math in their head and record sales on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, I was just thinking about it from my own personal experience and, and from that angle that you do, generally speaking, have to have a plan for uh, uh, rolling out any new service. Because if you don't, um, and you think you're just doing it because, well, I've got extra cycles, or I've got extra CPUs, or I've got extra mm -hmm. bandwidth, before you know it, um, somebody's going to be requiring that, that that favor you turned on become a, a justified approved and supported service. Well, isn't that why people use terms like beta or what do you call it <laughs> before beta, right? Well, um, that's that's the thing, Larry. I mean, when you're talking about something that goes through, when you're talking about something that goes through major uh, project approval, you get all those kinds of things, right? You have teams that do beta and, and user acceptance testing and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But 
a lot of times there are services that can be turned on, especially from a pure infrastructure standpoint, that don't require a whole lot of you know team investigation and user acceptance approval. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know when you turn on something as a favor for someone, uh, the only approval is the person that asked for the favor. And if they start using it and then other people decide they want to use it, well, it's at that point, your ability to roll it out in a traditional production model, release to production model, goes down the tubes. And if you're a service provider, you get really bogged down, just like with a lot of other, I don't know if we've talked to you, like in terms of having the the model clients where you want to have the the early clients that get bogged down with because you just want to spend extra time with them. Well, there, there is, there is, I think there's a linkage there, Larry. I mean, I wasn't thinking that way, but I do think that there's a linkage there. I mean, and I've, I, it's funny, I was just advising um, a, a startup, uh, one of the advice, uh, startups that I advise, I was just advising them the other day. And I was talking about to them about the risk of getting too embedded in an early, but very large customer mm-hmm. and focusing on delivering exactly what that customer wants, mm-hmm. whether or not it's what um, the product should have, you know, for every other customer. And uh, they have to recognize two things. One is that they may be creating cycles that are used only by one customer, while two, they're, they're effectively pulling money out of their 401k account as far as their um, schedule for their product or their service um, and their available hours of time because they never recover that. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a snowball effect, unfortunately. Uh, Rob, did you want to take a lead? I took your conversation away from you. No, no, no. This is I'm fascinated by this conversation, and you're you're poking me in all the in, in places that make me want to shout. So it's it's an it makes it that which qualifies as excellent uh, to oh, me. And by the way, Ed. I poked Paul on Twitter last this week with his yeah. new boss based off our conversation from last week. Um, <laughs> uh, so he started working with Equinix and basically the, the head of Equinix, I asked him a question and he mentioned something about open, that was open hardware. I'm like, oh, and then I'm like, he said something then, said, and I've been talking about this, CC Paul. And then Paul went on a seven point rant. I hope he doesn't stop <laughs> mad at me. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I actually am sure he will appreciate, one, the elevation of it, and two, the discussion, because Paul's a I love discussion type of person. Um, I, you know, I'm, I, so. I just wanted ahead, to Mark, mention something along what Mark had said. Uh, Inktomy had a separate release, well, had a separate test path for AOL for their network caching product because AOL was their big customer mm-hmm. and uh, saw the same thing with cloud.com where every release was driven by certain multiple customers who said, if we only had, and uh, mm. yep. it was it was just a, a treadmill rat race kind of thing. Yep. We ran into the same things at DocuSign. If we tried to get too down the rabbit hole of what a large customer might, might want, it would distract from what we were trying to do for the larger community. Exactly. Exactly the point. Yeah. Um, we. I mean, the, the specific example, first example where I was in a position enough to, to recognize the problem and um, be partially responsible for trying to fix it was I was with Service Mesh and we were working with the Bank of America. And Bank of America, you know, they spend $6 billion on IT 
and they were doing a proof of concept with us that was going to last a year and uh, eventually. And um, they were asking for all kinds of things that were not ever on our original roadmap. But it's really hard to say no to somebody that who might end up spending, you know, millions with you um, if they get it right. But it it's it's a dangerous path. It's like it's like it's the same path or the same same sort of risk that you have when you're talking about um, uh, doing too much um, or when you end up doing too much professional services as part of a software release and being dependent on those dollars. Um, that, that sets uh, um, a bad precedent for focus in the company and um but, but this thing is, is product design, right? Yeah. So what you're what you're talking about, Excel, right? You know, has a whole bunch of built-in functions, but it's fundamentally fungible. So what makes it so adaptable? If you've identified where you can do customization, I think it's a reasonable thing. Like, I mean, because we're we're doing exactly what you're describing, although literally we do almost no custom. You know, there's very little customization. Things that that are our customers ask us to do become productized after three iterations or sooner, so, depending yeah. on what they do. But it's, it's so design. I mean, that's the design is fungible stuff, right? We extend the product using a plugin system. So the API changes don't become permanent until there's grounds for it. Um, that's because but, you figured out how to do it without getting trapped down the rabbit hole. You've got the abstraction layer in there. Whereas with a lot of these start, when you're in a startup, it's just, we need this. And it it's how spaghetti code happens and how all the other issues happen. It's okay, the customer just needs this one thing and they'll buy more product. And even if they buy more product, you're locking into a single provider uh, if you haven't architected it such that it's expandable to different applications. You're, you're, you're making me smile because I'm thinking about the my infrastructure as code. I, I did a five minute infrastructure as code summary for a local group. Um, and one of the things about this was if you're just duct taping things together, you're not really doing infrastructure as code. But we see, I mean, this isn't just a product problem. It's an internal company problem. I was talking to yes. a company yesterday they have two different products that we would replace and extend. And so they're like, yeah, we want one thing that's standard, but at the same time, it's so meshed to Mark's original point, right? It's so, it's so meshed in their organization that pulling it out is, is going to be, it's very hard to shut down services once you have well, it. It gets to what you'd said before, where you get the, the, scope sprawl where these applications end up getting spidered into an enterprise in all these unclear and indeterminate ways. So you end up with dependencies that you don't necessarily foresee when you go to move these sorts of things out. We, we see that a lot in the data center space over here at Equinix. Yeah. One of the, one of the only good things about having a bank of America as a customer, no, as AT&T as a customer with um, Ink to me was their network was so freaking messed up that we had to have special, we sent a team of, of test engineers out to, to their site to work on their network and develop test suites that could find the problems 
with their proxies. And the only good thing about that was that we now had a solution for other companies who had just as messed up networks. So it be, happened to be a general application, but it was in search of satisfying a single customer and a lot of resources. Yep. Yeah. That's dangerous. I mean, and, and, you know, it's going to be different for every situation, right? I mean, it's, um, it's, de it depends on how your code is designed. It depends on, um, on how the team that's involved in the, uh, in the proof of concept is, um, is dependent or not dependent on, um, helping you build the rest of your code. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things in there that determine the value, but it, it, it points, I think, to, you know, to, to Larry's part of the question, my part of the question, and, and Rob's point, I think it, it points to the fact that you just can't go into building something for people without a plan for how to get out of it. Um, and whether getting out of it is a positive thing or getting out of it is considered a negative thing, it's, it's all a factor of um, how, did you, how did you plan to, to get this rolled out in the first place, whose hours were involved, and once you've done with it, who's going to support it? And when you're doing it, have you made a decision that's viable uh, and justifiable against effort that could have been put against something that the business could have perceived as more valuable, right? So the, the bottom line is I didn't, when I was doing people favor as an infrastructure weenie at HP in the 90s, um, before I started learning my lesson, I wasn't going to my CIO or my head of infrastructure and saying, could I be spending my time more successfully on something else? I was making a customer happy and I thought that was a good enough reason to do something, right? And that's just a very simple example, but um, uh, it's, 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 it's as, you know, no, no different from how a government agency might put in a road and then next year ask you for money to pay for it in taxes for, um, for support and upkeep of the road. No, that should have been part of the plan. You don't build the road unless you've got a period of money to support the road after it's gone into place. Otherwise, the road was never justified in the first place. And, and our projects are, are, are not dissimilar, regardless of whether we sell them to a customer or are running them ourselves inside our business. That was, that was Reminds me of the need for a go-back plan. You know, what is right. what is your plan to go back to the starting line if you encounter a, a hard stop situation? When I was deploying IP phone systems and contact centers, I used to have to build those all the time because if something went sideways, I had to get back to where we started before business opened. Yep. Well, and this is the value of abstraction layers from that that mm -hmm. perspective and and not consuming things as, as directly. Although it's, you know, um, in my in the chat, I was ranting on Terraform which, you know, brilliant strategy for becoming an essential product without any permission or controls in, in place at all. Um, they, you know, they're still at zero dot, they're now at one four, and they introduced significant breaking changes between um, 12, you know, 12, 12, 13, and 14 have, um, you know, a degree of breaking changes with their, their whole architecture. Um, and, but there, you know, it's like, well, it's not released software yet. You know, four years, what, six years old now, and it's not released. So I, I, that there, there's elements here where it's sort of unexcusable. And then we all jump on the bandwagon because it's, be, you know, to Mark's point, it's become an essential service. Um, 
my favorite, I, I'm going to tell a story, but then I, I do want to pivot us to inflection points because this is, I think, our last real meeting until we meet for the uh, four-hour summit. Oh, no. Wow. We'll, we'll probably do some unofficial planning meetings um, between or here and there. Or a little holiday spirit. Um, the, you know, the, the very famously Microsoft re-implemented APIs when they came out, I think with Windows 95, they re-implemented bugs that were in the previous versions of Windows because those bugs had become embedded in the software, in their software ecosystem. And so they literally, when, when they, it took them years to get this right, but they had to test every single game Every like they went to their ecosystem and tested and tested and tested, and they would re-implement API defects that people had been using as workarounds because if they didn't fix them, the games that they had already been sold would fail. And for them to keep market, they had to re-implement those things. Today's market, though, we don't we we're very much burn the bridges. Um, this is what drives me nuts. We had this conversation in one of the the Amazon recaps that I was in where it's like, yeah, Amazon's like, yeah, we're changing the service around, you know, you have, you know, six months to get off of it or, or CentOS, oops, hey, sorry, you can't depend on CentOS for production anymore. Thank you very much. Um, we've, we've gotten to a point where we're, we're expecting people to build systems in IT that um, try to break Mark's law. And Edge is definitely not gonna be like that. You put a device in the field, it's in the field. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's no going back. I mean, from a security risk standpoint, from a data collection and value of data standpoint to um, uh, somebody is, I mean, it, somebody takes some small feature that you've implemented for something else and turned it into a safety feature that becomes now fundamental to operation of a heavy piece of equipment or robotics or traffic planning or something. And a, a year later, when it fails and a car crashes, somebody's going to come and say, what the fuck? Why wasn't this working? Why wasn't it protected? Why wasn't it being updated? Why weren't the security patches applied? And you're like, uh, I only applied that to collect weather information for a day and left it there. <laughs> yeah. Or it was a hack because I was waiting for a patch to come out, but it got rolled out and then somebody right. put something on top of it. Yeah. Right. Do you, do you think that the supply chain hack with solar winds is going to, um, my dog's excited about solar winds. Um, I shouldn't have named him Solar Winds. That was a huge mistake. Um, Mine's What's Up Gold, so don't feel bad. <laughs> um, the the um, but that you know the supply chain aspect of what we're talking about. It's it's you know one you got to be able to update quickly, but two. Um, you know, rolling out those updates could potentially then compromise your whole system. It, it seems like an impossible bind. It, it really does. And, and I don't, I don't mean to, you know, jump in in front of everyone else, but the, when I heard about the solar winds hack, um, it actually made me, um, uh, it reminded me of supply chain hacks that our own NSA was doing uh, with disk drives out of Taiwan. Mm. Uh, uh, updating uh, firmware to allow for uh, remote hacking um, before they ever arrived on people's desks and even un unboxing and reboxing to look identical to the original box. Um, and so, you know, it's not as if um, uh, Russia or China or whoever it is did this. Uh, 
is the first to do it, but certainly they did it really, really well. I, I am frankly terrified uh, and I'm glad I don't run a, a large infrastructure organization anymore um, because I'm terrified of, of the, not only the precedent that this sets, but the onus that it will put on large organizations from a security standpoint. We imagine, I mean, you work for Equinix, right? Um, and and the, the onus that many of your buyers, certainly many of the buyers of companies that I've worked with in the past, on the security and operational perfection that you will provide them as your customer, imagine having to do that for every vendor that supports the delivery of your service. Yep. It's, it's horrifying that the scale and breadth of what this represents is, is really the most terrifying element of it because it's the first one we've uncovered. I, I think we'd be delusional to think it's the only one out there. Yeah, I would agree. Do you guys, were you, when you read about how the hack happened and that it was sitting in the code for six months and all that stuff, did you, were you surprised? Like, did this surprise you how, how it happened or the, how they inserted it in and all that stuff? Andrea, I mean, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a, historically, I'm a little bit of a spy junkie, although I don't do that much reading in that area anymore because I, unfortunately, I've given up my fun time reading and I tend to do it more for work these days. And for the last couple of years, um, uh, uh, plus my social justice side of me has taken over, and it's like I feel like I'm I'm ruining society if I'm reading a Tom Clancy novel instead of reading The Color of Law or something like that. But um, all that being equal, you know, the history around um, about around spycraft, especially from um, Russia and uh, China, as two perfect examples, are that they will build systems that they don't expect rewards from for anywhere from 18 months to 18 years. So it doesn't surprise me a bit when you see the target delivery audience for solar winds that I would have, I would have put something in, you know, in with a project planner who didn't even plan to put the code into the product for another three years. I would have been all over that if I was a Russian spy because the opportunity was so large, right? Um, so it, it really doesn't surprise me what, what, um, what uh, actually, I don't know that it, it surprises me that we didn't do a better job at, um, at uh, you know, validating backdoors and stuff like that. I mean, when you consider the complexity of these products, knowing all that before you implement uh, just seems like too much to ask. But, uh, you know, as we started talking about, it, it seems like maybe somehow that's gonna be the criteria going forward. When it gets back to a problem that's existed since, well, software was developed, right? Security has always been a third or fourth thought in, yep. in product development. And yep. that history is being exploited, you know, by, by the attackers because they've been paying attention to what, what screen doors were left unlocked, yep. you know, and, and, and what, what windows the, didn't have any glass put on. Will this be the inflection point that changes that? Like, or are you surprised that the inflection hasn't somebody, already happened? Yeah, somebody asked that question already. earlier, and we didn't we didn't really answer it. Somebody, I don't know if that was Rob or Larry. Somebody asked that question earlier whether whether this would um, finally change how people prioritized um, security. I think uh, I think the the from my perspective, the simple perspective is that we have to be careful of um, getting into a position where we get ever, ever better 
at chasing the symptoms of a hack. And we need to get better at finding ways of, of keeping um, the hack from having any value. And, and that may sound counterintuitive, but the, the tools that um, uh, we're building these days, um, some for good purpose and some for nefarious reasons, maybe AI tools or machine learning tools, um, there, to me, there really is no reason why over time we can't just assume that um, our networks will be hacked and that AI will be um, uh, managing uh, anomalies on that network. And, Unless it's uh, been hacked too. What's that? <laughs> Unless well, it's been hacked too. That's but always a possibility. It, Unless it's the AI that does training. the hacking. Right. Well, AI. But would would solar winds have been caught then? Because the system sat for six months, right? Yeah, Without. no, they would have been they would have well, been caught because it I mean in real terms from from a, when you think about the potential power of an AI solution in real terms the fact that packets were leaving encrypted hidden as something else that would have been exactly what you would have uh, asked AI to be looking for AI would have been smart enough to realize was not normal traffic and they would have flagged it I would think I but haven't read this yeah. Is anyone to blame? I, I don't remember hearing anyone say anyone's to blame for this ha hack. Was there any? Well, there. The, it's it, Tim Crawford's problem. Uh, in a failed. Throw <laughs> <laughs> him right under the bus as soon as he walks in. You didn't realize yeah. there was a bus coming for you. So you know, there, I, there are. It, it's going to be I, hard for the blame game because with. Uh, all these companies and all these teams doing agile and lean and uh, and quick turnaround and CICD and whatnot. There are a number of techniques that were used long ago and far away that have fallen by the wayside. I mean, back in the day, there used to be QA and QA would <laughs> start at the design level, the design spec level where there was a team specifically there to question designs, testability, uh, usability, security, et cetera. Now, security has always kind of been like a uh, second citizen, but QA was always the champion of these downstream teams. QA doesn't exist anymore. Not it true. hasn't for years. And they're all Not talking true. shifting left. Well, that's because they shifted way out of the way again. So will there be, will they find someone to blame? Only if they can find an individual who is no longer at the company who specifically injected these particular bits. And if they find that they were injected over a course of time where it was a little bit here, a little bit there, they're not gonna be, they're not gonna find blame. They're just gonna say, oh, we need to improve our process. So then that Gina's they not here because Gina has experience actually was was there and was part of the product the product marketing for this that cool. product. Cool. But, 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 but this is a big problem with agile in that it goes so fast that there's no time to have a systems level perspective. I, I don't I don't know Rocky. I mean I, I get your point, but um, in the teams that I've helped with agile or uh, you know. I don't want to call myself anything approaching a DevOps expert. So that would, you know, that would be, um, I think. Uh, ooh, ooh, can I comment here? I tell everyone <laughs> you're an expert in everything. 
Thank you, Andrea. Thank you. Uh, no wonder I get all that spam. Um, but um, you know, when I when uh, the first time I put together a team that was similar to, in theory, to DevOps uh, was at Gilead in 2004, 2005 timeframe, and we got rid of the change management team and all that stuff. But the point of the DevOps process is not to remove uh, oh those those ugly hindrances of people worried about what gets put into a firewall or people worried about um, whether the release to production will cause a disruption or a security hole. It rather it's actually to automate those things that are known understood processes and um, actually allow you to deliver code and solutions more quickly and more accurately. Right? I mean the you can yes. do it wrong. You can, you can definitely do it wrong, but the point of automation, we, we make jokes. Yeah, you could automate something that's bad and it just makes it bad more often, but the point of automation and DevOps certainly has a major component of automation associated with it is to actually be repeating good behavior without having to talk to people every time that you do it. And um, I would say that in, if I were to look back at some of the QA teams that I not necessarily been responsible for, but have worked with, like as recently as Epsera, I would say that maybe there is a difference between QA for success of code from a customer perspective, and then QA from a quality of code, as in is the code efficient, et cetera, et cetera, but not necessarily QA from a content like if people read it and it makes sense and it doesn't seem to break anything, uh, um, are they even testing against it? Do they need to test against it? Um, how do they value or evaluate um, some string of code that they're not even worried about looking at because as far as they're concerned, it doesn't put any functionality at risk. Um, and I think that's a hard, um, a, a hard nut to crack. It's a hard nut to crack and agile earlier. makes it harder. Um, that's why you go back to uh, the space space stuff and you know, the original IoT where you're not touching anything for how long has Voyager been sitting out there and, mm -hmm. and uh, transmitting data that's actually useful. Uh, that, that software, you make one small mistake in an upgrade and you've lost the system. Uh, so there's a lot different approach for those sorts of systems and back in the day when it made a bigger difference than today because everything is throwaway code and DevOps definitely automating the systems makes it easier to validate and replicate and find the problems because then you're spending time on the hard stuff that you need human minds on rather than computing cycles. But without going back and accepting that uh, whatever you want to call it, it won't be called QA this next time around, but the analysis process that was used in the past to figure out whether code is architected reasonably well and whether it accounts for the stakeholders needs and uh, and even wants sometimes, although once is that thing that Mark was talking about, you don't wanna have to put all the wants in there, but the needs, 
until there is an analysis process that's systemic, uh, there, there's going to be a lot more of these holes found over time because we've gotten around away from applying system level thinking at the software developer process. And DevOps is in some ways a patch and the productization process that was required to add the quality doesn't exist in most of the code that doesn't exit a company. So if so, you created, all so created a like a product, you have a better time of it, except it I have a question. I have a question. Are we talking? Are we talking about from the vendor perspective, or are we talking about how the customer develops code? Because I see those as two different things. So are we talking about SolarWinds as a company and how companies like SolarWinds develop code, or are we talking about the customers that were impacted and how they develop code or how they consume um, products and code? Uh, the SolarWinds, the company that's producing the production sold code. But okay. also uh, the part of the issue along those lines also is that if you have a product like SolarWinds, you do have customers that if you're not careful in how you produce SolarWinds and take into account the foibles of your customers, they can actually inject their own exploits that make SolarWinds uh, susceptible. So yes, but I'm trying to it, distinguish exactly. between the two because yeah. I see them as two completely separate issues. Yep. So product, the product, and okay. you know, part of the issue is the the same care that was taken in creating the product uh, and and validating that was uh, supposedly secure and usable and everything isn't taken with internal code such as the build server. Uh, the code that was put on that right. doesn't go through the same rigorous check process, rigorous but, test analysis process. But from a SolarWinds perspective, the supply chain aspect was, you know, that individual change would, has a much smaller blast radius. It's much less likely to have an injection by somebody who's trying to trying to take advantage of I mean, I, that we're down in the, the details. I'm, I'm yeah, the, in the details yeah. at this point. But I, but I think what, what we're both it talking makes it around more susceptible. Is, is complex. Is the is and um, and this to me is an inflection point that I'm, I'm tracking on the list. Right, we have a whole bunch of scale related inflection points and complexity of IT systems is part of that inflection point. Right? Are we are we talking around a a, a problem? And I don't think AI makes things less complex. Just as, it doesn't make it le less complex, but, but for instance, if you apply uh, big data analysis to, uh, and if you have everything observable, so you turn on every single, yeah, but then every there's, there's too much. Marker. But the, this, this to me is here. So here's 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 where things are going, which is a challenge. I think. And we've talked about this in, in multiple sessions. There's a complexity explosion. We are we yep. are seeing an increase in complexity. You just look at the Kubernetes landscape, and that product is designed to increase complexity in IT organizations. <laughs> Rob, there right. actually always has been. It's this is not this is not new. I mean, Mark and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, yeah. complexity in IT is a reality, and the 
as soon as the sooner you can admit it and accept it, the sooner you can start addressing it. But we're not going to get simpler as we go through time. So, so from that perspective, let me then see if I can run the, run the inflection point to ground. Is, is there a breaking point with complexity where we, we need to simplify things and they just got, they guess they get we're, too complex and we, we start changing or is, you know, so is it, are we the, are we, we the frog in the complexity hot water or is, you know, actually, we're, are we, we're or is this just, just, it's acceptable status quo and we're going to build it into our systems and it's going to get better. <laughs> No, the frog, you know, the frog in the boiling water, I think is, is a great analogy for this. Um, we're past that point. People just don't, they either don't realize it or they're not looking at it from that perspective, but it's definitely the water temperature has been increasing and the frog never realized it. And so we're past that inflection well, point. I, I don't think the get problem the frog in the boiling water. I mean. Uh, the, uh, the analogy is that a that you can you can cook a frog by gradually turning up the water. They don't they acclimate. They don't notice that the water is getting too hot. So they uh, okay. too they would jump out. They, they would if they would jump out if they felt like it was hot. But if they if you slowly increase the temperature, they get used to so it. So you don't think CIOs didn't know? They, everyone knew this was happening, right? We keep designing systems. Or I mean, this is like Solar Wind sells a product to mitigate operational complexity by having this behemoth of a monitoring infrastructure. It's like, oh, we're just adding a new widget in, right? I mean, this is Solar SolarWinds literally came in and said, you've got this incredibly complex divergent environment. We're going to sell you a tool that, that helps you monitor all things. Um, and that let them sneak in something under the radar that you didn't even, didn't even realize was there. Charge I, but I guess that's the, that's the point I'm trying to make is that this is not unique to SolarWinds. It's yeah. just solar winds. Solar winds is the one that that we're aware of at this point. But there are, I'm certain there are more out there. I mean, this goes back to my my whole thing of IT running with scissors. So you know, I asked the question: <laughs> Are we talking about the vendor? Or are we talking about the the consumer of the products? Right. We take this this product or project approach where we say, okay, we're going to put solar winds in, and then we're off to the next thing, and we don't necessarily come back to it or manage it in a programmatic programmatic way, right? As a product. And so this is one of the core fundamental issues is, I mean, there are several, it's not any one, but several of these kind of came together. And I think that's why you're seeing this kind of hit the fan, if you will. Yeah, I think the customers run with grenades without pins. I, I okay, um... same. Same analogy. Yeah, but are, does that, is, is that is is there an inflection point where we slow down this? Like people say, "Whoa, wait a second! I I don't want to implement the new new, and I'm I'm gonna." That that's the CentOS. The CentOS thing. There are lots of companies that don't implement the new new, and they're considered old and stodgy or just slow and and. You know, second tier or third tier or whatnot, but um, there are a lot of conservative uh, communities uh, and verticals and whatnot. So, uh, I, I think oil and gas seeing, is conservative. 
I think we're seeing a lot of even those conservative companies start to move towards bleeding edge technologies and then get upset when they bleed. Yeah, uh, especially the, the ones who have been so conservative and have all these processes, change, change control and all these other things, and they move to the new stuff and suddenly things, like you said, bleed. And then they're starting to, then, then they sit there and go, whoa, why is everything breaking? Except that they forget that they've changed their processes. The whole yeah, there's not a culture thing. there. Yeah, digitalization brings out a lot of the weaknesses of uh, company process. Yeah, I, I, I still, and it's probably a, a failed um, idea before it gets started. But um, uh, you know, I, I've used the analogy before. We we started talking about it at the beginning of the of the discussion today a little bit. But um, you know, you if if you find yourself um, needing to bucket water out of the bottom of the dinghy faster and faster, the answer is not to get more buckets. The answer is <laughs> to fix the leaks. Mm-hmm. Right. And in in this particular case, um, I think it brings to bear and and are the combination of discussion around complexity and speed that we've included in the topic from the beginning um, leads me to believe that long term, the the only real successful answer is to have something that mitigates the risk by uh, monitoring the entire system, almost regardless of how it's put together. Yep. So you, you can take whatever building blocks you want to build the environment you need, but the system of governance that monitors that environment is what is what tells you whether or not there are leaks or breaches or risks to availability, et cetera, et cetera. I just, and I, I realize that's a, it's a pipe dream today, but um, this problem is not going to get easier. It's only going to get harder. And but AI, how does that come together? Is that like at, the, at what level? Is it like at the hardware level, at the application level? Like how do you even build that? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not an AI specialist, right? So I'm just I'm just looking at it from the perspective of when I've done um, process of elimination type tools for things like intrusion detection and and things like that, um, or worked with partners who have helped me. And when I say I've done them, I haven't done shit. I, I couldn't code myself out of a paper bag. Um, so, um, but when I've done those things, it's about understanding what the environment is supposed to look like in very, very simple terms and recognizing when there are anomalies. And there are already AI ops oriented systems that allow you to take a look at an environment and understand where failure may occur and allow you to do remediation in many cases without ever having to touch any code or um, send someone into a data center. And so those, those same practices have been used in small increments or in portions of infrastructure and applications. Um, there are already companies now that automate the process of, of identifying anomalous behavior in network traffic patterns, uh, peer-to-peer networking risks and things like that to identify what actually might be considered anomalous or a security threat and allow you to address it. I, I just see that if we continue to focus on treating the symptoms, that the people that are breaking in will, will be breaking in with AI systems before <laughs> we have AI systems to help protect against those break-ins by other AI systems. So I say, fucking jump the shark, you know, screw this, this short-term, let's screw the bolts in faster and faster and faster and go right to 
what it is we really need to protect the environment in a future that is likely to be threat actors using AI to, to pummel networks and firewalls and, and every other system uh, in your environment. Mainframes 2030. Get on my platform, folks. I, well, this <laughs> I, actually, what 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 you're what you're talking about is is where I'm going with some of my notes about this from an inflection point perspective, because at some point, what we're really saying is just pull the you know we're going to have to pull the plug and keep people off infrastructures. Well, you hit the big red button on the Wait, manufacturing line, and then you sit there and figure out where the problems are, and you fix the manufacturing line but we haven't hit that big red button yet. What but, do you yeah. mean by well, off infrastructure? Well, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that if, if there is no way to, you know, if Mark's right and you're just like, our AIs are getting more and more secure and we can't determine that our supply chain is safe, we're just gonna cut, we're just gonna dig a electronic moat around our buildings and not let traffic in or out and say, you know what, we don't have remote work. Um, come into the it's office. It's like that complete opposite of what's to... happening in the world. Well, this, well, is, why this, it's an, is... this is why it's an inflection point question. To yeah, I, do we get to you a know, point where it's undefendable and you have to result, take a dramatic action? Sorry, Tim. You know, I, I hate to say this. I'm, I'm all for, you know, supporting Mark in any way I can. Um, and I hate to say it, but he's right. He's absolutely right. But here's the problem. The train's already left the station. And so it's not as simple as just pulling the plug on it and and not doing it. It I I can't see how that realistically would play out because when you start to think about the entire value chain from infrastructure and the most basic technology all the way to the consumer, right? Uh, meaning each of us going into a grocery store or going to a gas station or going to a doctor's office. There's absolutely no way that we can go backwards. There's no way we can go backwards at this point. I mean, companies companies even struggle today with outages of how do they kind of go back to a manual process or be able to, to address this. I I agree with Mark, but there's gotta be there's gotta be some solution in the middle that we can address it. But the piece that I know some of the communities that, that I'm party to and, and participate in, one of the things we have been talking about for some time, some time being a few years now, is that the threat actors absolutely are using AI. And some of the vendors that produce these types of products like Microsoft and Amazon are actually trying to identify when someone is using it for nefarious reasons as opposed to, or malicious reasons as opposed to um, productive pieces. And unfortunately that's incredibly hard to do, but no, regulation, no, no, no. Tim, I agree with you that that's a remediation. That's all remediation. And all we've been talking about here is remediation. The question is, you can't pull the plug. How do you get to the, the root? And I think it goes back to something I've said before, either on this or on the Tuesday call is, we have to get back to valuing good solid engineering and engineering principles. And we as engineers, technologists have to do a better job of telling the business, look, you're about to go off a cliff. If you make the decision, you will go off the cliff. Here is the data that demonstrates that. Do you wanna be the next CEO like Target 
who got fired because they ignored good engineering principles, period. We as engineers have, look, the train has left the station, and I think it's a good thing the train has left the station. It's not that we've gotten advanced as the problem. It's that we've got, we've thrown out all the things that we learned along the way. We've, we, we, we've done, we, we, you know, you can go to school, and I'm not beating up on schools or anything like that, guys. Know where I'm coming from. But we, we rewarded, go get a certificate in coding, and you're now a developer. Go get, you know, go take a course in Python, you now can code. And you now have the you know the, the uh, a coders um, um, thing, and then you got Google and all the rest of them selling a quick way. I mean, whole, AWS made its whole business on you don't have to worry about this infrastructure stuff. You don't have to worry about good principles. Just push the code; we'll take care of it. We have got to get back to solid engineering principles. That's good that's, skills. That's the that's the development. message. That's the message to from reInvent was hey we're we're going to invent some AIs that take care of this for you. Just keep inventing, and we're gonna we're gonna improve the the operational stuff in the back end, right? This was like to I, I I mean Keith, this is what scares me for this. It's it, we're making it easier and easier for people to leverage incredibly powerful tool. Yep. So uh, without so under is- without understanding, you know, sort of the the consequences for how to do that for how to do it. Um, right back in the back in the eighties, right? We used to have books about people doing a bio lab in their basement and unleashing a killer virus. Hard to imagine, I know, but, um, <laughs> but that was right. We're, we're getting to that point with AI and, and technology tools where. Um, and you know, biohacking too. <laughs> and biohacking. Well, so- I, I like, um, I like the sentiment um, uh, uh, from Keith. Um, and I think that that should be, a target and goal for uh, every organization. But uh, unfortunately, the reality of humans um, makes the that effort largely failed in the long term for any organization. And I'll give you a simple example. As part of my job, I've also had to worry about physical security for data centers, etc. And when you've got somebody watching a monitor as an example for outside traffic, you never leave them on the monitor for more than an hour. It doesn't matter how much you beat that person. They cannot watch the monitor for more than an hour and be 100% effective at identifying threats or risks that are entering the property. Uh, and that's and when you're when you're the soldier guarding a, a camp, you never are allowed to walk the, the border more than a certain amount of time or, or because the assumption will be that your patience and, and attention will wander. And security, unfortunately, is the same thing. You you run security for two years and you don't have a threat, people begin to be people. And um, and that's just the, the nature of humanity. And we can fight it like saying, um, well, just don't have sex because we don't wanna give you condoms. So just don't have sex. And we all know how well that works. Um, so we have to, we have to, we have to account for how humans live with the stuff if we're gonna um, figure out how to address the problem. So it gets to the point of, at some point your firefighters become arsonists. (laughs) There's an SD-WAN. I agree with Mark, those sorts of things, the monitoring and stuff are perfect places where AI is currently capable of addressing a lot of the pitfalls. But we're in, the second phase of expert systems at this point. 
back when expert systems was the first way of uh, freeing up the expensive people through AI, it was the experts would would provide their knowledge to a an AI uh, developer and would come up with a set of rules that they use to avoid these problems and whatnot. Now we're in training, but again, there the limitation is if you don't know what to train the system on and all the different inflection points, there it's going to have as many holes as a junior engineer or junior whoever that's doing it. So we still have the problem that AI can address some of the more ordinary uh, repetitive, repetitive issues, but can't actually do the knowledge worker uh, heavy lifting. So there's a there's an SD went going back to what I think it was Mark was just talking about. There's a, there's an SD WAN uh, company out of Port out of Beaverton that I've that I've worked with in the past. They just announced um, some risk monitoring uh, software uh, using using light AI, I guess is how I would put it. But the stats that they that they found on the number of alerts, one of the things that we don't, that one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is the fatigue, right? It's alert fatigue that that gets in there. I think it was um, you know they basically not uncommon for. IT and ops managers to see hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of alert emails each day. Uh, yeah. You know, 10,000. I mean, at what point does 10,000, a human can't process that? Yeah, no, they can't even really process hundreds, let alone thousands. I mean, that's, right. what, that's what I was talking about earlier on about right. tools to help um, eliminate, you know, false positives and things like that and look for true anomalous behavior rather yeah, than exactly what's really right. actionable, right what's really actionable right what's really yeah i i can't tell you how many conversations i've had with my teams around this just this one issue which is great now we put in this monitoring product now we're getting just pummeled with alerts mm -hmm. and so what they do is they turn up the squelch on it so that they they get fewer alerts but they miss the the core pieces the until after something has fall, fallen apart and so the challenge there is how do you how do you set it up just right? And I mean, granted, this is not a new problem. This is an old problem. I mean, I've ha been having these conversations with my teams for shoot, 20 years. Um, and so it's more than that, actually. But I think that the point here is we need better intelligence to understand what is real and what is not. And the technology is there. I don't think we're necessarily applying it as well as our mindset in the right way. This isn't just a technology problem. And that's the other piece here is that this yeah. th there isn't this silver bullet that we just drop in and, and automatically everything gets addressed. There has to be human intuition that comes into play in this. And I think that's the piece that we're ultimately missing, whether it's from the vendor perspective or the the consumer, you know, the buyer's perspective. Tim, I agree. And basically, there still needs to be people to manage the software and to handle the incoming alerts and the dashboards. And if you can't do it internally, you need to, for example, manage security service provider to actually be monitoring these things, to be able to take actions when necessary. Otherwise, you just pay yeah. money 
for software that you're not going to use. And one of one of the things I heard from big from the founder of Big Leaf on when I was talking to him about that about how he built it, he goes, "It's the the AI is not enough. You've got to have people that have been in that industry long enough to be able to understand what is truly actionable and what is just noise, because the AI is not going to be able to process that. You actually have to have people that have been in that seat." That's this what, is we why have, I had, had wait, wait, ISS. But, <laughs> hold on. I need I need one minute for hold logistics. Because I right, I actually think we could do four hours on this and everybody would be animated and excited and that would be easy. Um, actually, I've, I've been taking this conversation, the inflection points, and then breaking it back to questions. But here, here's my suggestion. Before we go into the seventh, are people interested in shifting this meeting to Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning for the next two sessions and lining out the, the questions a little bit? Basically, it's going to be me. I have to plan logistics for the, the, the framework, but I also have to start publicizing it. So I'll be tapping on all of you to help um, encourage people to come to the, the session. But um, I, you know, if you're not planning work, that's fine. I, you know, I'll, I'll pull this together, take my notes and, and do the, do Are the you topics. Do it during the DevOps time? I could do No, Well, the next DevOps time is a book club. And then I wasn't going to do one next week. I was thinking of doing the same 8am slot, 8am Pacific slot um, on the 22nd or the 23rd, and then do the same thing the 29th or the 30th, whichever we pick. Um, as long next, as you don't next. do Monday. Sundays, I'm always up late for some strange reason, yeah. even when no, I'm I, not working. Body knows Sunday, stay up till three. <laughs> I get it. No, Tuesday, it would be, it would be, a, my, my thought would be to do it on a Tuesday. Um, stay, stay farther away from the holidays. But. I'm, I'm game. Okay. Oh, wait, Tim said he's game, so I'm not game. I'm out. <laughs> All right. I, uh, I will. I will. Um, I will do um, the modifications out. for those two events on to on to Tuesday. Um, this is a like my head is exploding. These are we're we're getting to this interconnected because it's this long thread. We're getting to these interconnected components of these discussions, um, and I think if we a little bit more and then the Thursday converse, the, the seventh is going to be an amazing conversation and more, even more will come out of it. But I, I I'm going to ask for help getting it publicized because the more, if we get about 20 people, I think it'll be a critical mass. So yeah. I just wanted to say that Mark's yeah. right about the AI. It's really got to pick up uh, the pace, uh, but AI is deep. And so the real key is figuring out where, we apply the human knowledge and and actively and cognitively say, this is handleable by the AI with a training system. And this is where you have to turn real human eyes on it and define the level so that you can actually put in intelligent alerting systems because you need to turn down the alert levels and you have to use AI for it, but you have to, be able to say this isn't this isn't handleable by AI at the moment. We don't have a system that's either deep enough or enough knowledge or expertise to be able to apply it in a training situation or whatnot. So yeah, and the real key is figuring out somebody's going to make lots of money figuring out 
how much is enough AI and uh, yet not too much. Anybody yeah. want to start a company? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, uh, we, you know, we all, we all can assume that, that what AI will eventually accomplish, but it's not, it, it's an easy, an easy stretch of the imagination to say that, um, uh, you know, we, you could, in theory, uh, see the images uh, as, you know, two dragons fighting each other, and it's one AI attempting to break in and another AI trying to figure out how to keep it out, right? And, and who, gets, who gets the keep out AI in first may be what saves the planet from the break in AI and vice versa. You're, I also well, see it though as the, the two dragons over Tokyo. Dragons. The human Sorry. dragon masters overseeing and, and tweaking them here and there. Yeah, but but this is this is like the this is like Godzilla in Tokyo. Because yeah. the way that, Godzilla that you're gonna versus Mothra. Right. No, but it's you know, there's 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 people behind trying to steer it, but what's gonna happen is they're gonna wreak just wreak, you know, even the good robot, even the good AI is going to wreak havoc as it shuts down systems trying to protect like it's going to oh, i need this building out of the way sorry all those users you gotta you know i'm knocking you over until until i've dealt with the threat right i mean we've we've seen this is a, an incredibly complex discussion topic right i mean we could literally spend a weekend uh, around a you know peyote fire um uh and not cover all of it but if you if you think I mean, about <laughs> I'm willing to try. Let's not even bother. Let's just start with the PO yeah. tire. We'll be... um, but if you, if you think about uh, how complex our systems are already, and, and, um, and then you think about how difficult so many organizations find it in keeping bias out of AI, imagine someone who thinks they can instantaneously make determinations about uh, making a change to the way AI is doing something without better understanding what the add-on side effects of that change might be as they ripple through the entire environment. Love how you did that without even saying the word Zuckerberg. Yeah, well. <laughs> you guys later, bye. Everybody, I, I, I'll officially move it in cloud 2030, but I already moved the invites and we'll keep going. This is amazing. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, thank you, guys. Wow, it's amazing to go back even a couple of months and realize how many of these core topics, automation, AI, uh, controls, play out over and over again in, in a routine basis for us. So if these discussions are, are important to you and you have an opinion, please join us. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.